This morning we are in Genesis chapter 2. The genesis of marriage is what we're looking at. This, we will have several marriage messages coming up as we move through the book of Genesis. And this morning I'm going to talk about the beginning of marriage. Genesis means beginnings or origin. So whenever you see the word Genesis, that's what it means. So the book of Genesis is filled with the beginnings of things, institutions that God put into place, what theologians call orders of creation principles. These spill over into the New Testament so that sometimes when an argument is being made in the New Testament, an appeal is made to an order of creation. An order of creation argument is different from a cultural argument. Some people might say, well, you know, uh, this applied for that culture. But when you see a New Testament writer make an argument from the orders of creation, what they're doing is saying, this is how God designed things. This is not cultural it is not based upon what time you might live in history. It flows throughout the history of man because it is connected to the beginning and the beginner. That's what the book of Genesis is about. It's about origins. It's about foundations. In fact, the first 11 chapters of the book of Genesis establish really the bulk of the rest of the principles for life and doctrines of the New Testament as they run throughout scripture. Let's pray for God's help as we get going. Father, as we talk about marriage, we do need all the help we can get. We confess it. It's not the easiest thing in life, but it's such a beautiful grace of life, such a gift that you have given to us. Good marriages are built upon the solid foundation of Jesus Christ, and underneath us are those everlasting arms. I pray for every person here, whether they're a widow, a widower, whether they're a young adult uh, thinking about marriage sometime in the future, whether somebody's even been through a divorce or um, whatever stage of life we might find ourselves, a gift of singleness is also in scripture. We know marriage is the main uh, thing that unfolds in society, and it's your plan, Lord. You know how it works best because it's from you. And I pray that as we get into it, Lord, our hearts would be open. Our hearts would be application stations. Our homes would be places where truth is not just heard but lived out. That's the challenge, Father. So we pray that we'd have humble hearts, ears to hear what you would say to us. Speak to us your wisdom, your life, your truth, we pray over our culture so confused about marriage, how to define it, where it comes from. Lord, would you please just cement in our minds that you made it and you know how it works best and may you bring clarity where there might be confusion. May you bring hope where there might be hopelessness and may you bring your life and your truth and your love to us in our hearts. We pray for Jesus' glory and in his name, amen. Well, over the years, um, I've done a lot of weddings, and I have a little bit of experience about marriage and marriage counseling. My wife and I, my beautiful wife, on the front row, here to keep me accountable throughout this message. We have been married for 25 years. Yes, it's true. Um, I got married when I was 12, just so you guys know. Okay. Actually, there was a lady at the outreach yesterday, and she goes, oh, you look so young. And whenever somebody says that to me, I gravitate towards that person. She goes, you're such a young pastor. And I said, well, how old do you think I am? And she goes, 37. And I said, oh, God bless you. You can come to the church, please, and bring your friends. So anyway. 
So the book of Genesis is about beginnings, and we've been talking about the creator and his creation, and we've been talking about how his creation testifies day and night to who he is. Psalm 19 is a great creation psalm, and it says, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of his hands, and day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they display knowledge. But the stars are not made in the image of God. The sun is not made in the image of God. A snow-capped mountain is not made in the image of God. Uh, Stars, the roaring of seas, a bird in flight, all those things that we might be in awe and might cause us to think, man, there must be a creator. Well, those things are not made in God's image. Do you know what? The only thing the Bible says is made in God's image, not even angels are said to be made in God's image. It's you and me. So that every time you encounter a human being, you can see God in that person. Now, we are not little gods, don't get me wrong, but we are made in the image of God so that the the thing, if you follow the argument that reflects God's glory the most or God's image the most is people. And we can so quickly You know, we want to take in a sunset or we want to be in awe of the stars. If you can go to the desert, you can see more than just a couple or go to the mountains. But we so quickly pass people by. I was uh, preaching at an event that was on creation evolution debate. And I said, just think of the most beautiful person that you've ever seen. Don't lust. But God is a master potter, isn't he? The way that he has put mankind together. I showed you some pictures of babies in a recent message, and you just look at the sparkle of life in a baby's eyes. God is a majestic creator, and the thing that is made in his image is us. And man, a man and a woman coming together reflect the gospel, which we will get to in a moment. People are without excuse not only by the things that have been created, sun, moon, and stars, they are without excuse by just encountering other people. Because every day we're reminded that God is there because people around you are made in his image. I'm not sure that we value people that way, but maybe we need to rethink that. You know, we've had a lot of nonsense coming out about uh, the devaluing of life and Planned Parenthood. We know what they've been up to. It's been exposed what they're doing. I won't get into graphic details, but I'll tell you this. Whenever a society begins to demote human life, and now we have some groups, by the way, that want animal citizenship. They They want our pets to become citizens, by the way. I mean, this is what's happening. We've lost our way. It's not that animals don't have value, but you're gonna see in a moment the high value that God places on mankind. And marriage, which is being debated in our culture right now, who defines it? Who really says what it means has already been defined. Henry Morris, who's written a wonderful commentary on Genesis, says, you know, think about it. Evolution cannot produce the covenant of marriage You don't see primates walking down an aisle with a little canopy in the jungle, exchanging rings. It's not what they do. But where did it come from? Think about it. Why do people get married? Why do people get involved in a heterosexual, monogamous relationship for life? Why would you do that? Because it is a creation ordinance. Marriage is from God. God designed it. God is the one who created it. Therefore, God can define it. Amen? Amen. 
So with all the confusion that we have in the culture, we've got to take another look, and this is part of the reason that we're going back to the beginning, is I want to take another look at marriage. Let's look at it. Let's see what God says about marriage. I tell people often when I do a a wedding that your marriage is not going to be defined by the seal of the state of California or even by a ceremony. Your marriage will be defined by a foundation. If I called my wife up here right now, I know what she would say. What has made our marriage work for 25 years? What has blessed it? Jesus Christ. Underneath us are the everlasting arms. My wife and I, when we got married, we were new Christians. We had our share of bumps. Marriage is not easy, but as we've matured in the Lord and as he is molded and shaped, I would tell you this, the intimacy that I enjoy with my beautiful wife, you, I would not give for anything in the world because it's gone deeper and deeper over the years. And the only way you will be able to know that is to do it God's way. Now, I know in a room like this, we've had our share of mistakes. I've made plenty of them. We all have. But let's let's look at God's design, and let's say that even if we're off track right now, maybe we can get on track and at least teach these principles to the next generation. God is the one who establishes the institution of marriage. In fact, before three institutions, there is family, government, and church, The first one that God ever creates in the Bible is the family. In fact, it's marriage. That's the first institution. I heard Jack Hibbs say recently that somebody on CNN, I think, said he wished that everybody was homosexual. And Jack said, well, that's something interesting, isn't it? Because if everybody was, and I don't know if the guy was saying it in tongue-in-cheek, we would have no human society in about a generation. (laughs) Hello? Hello? Now, one of the things that God did say is that within marriage, we are to be fruitful and multiply. You're going to see a woman created, and she is going to fit the man. And people have wondered, you know, these are some of the first words recorded of mankind in the Bible. And people say, well, where did Adam learn to talk? And what language did he speak? I can settle that right now. He spoke 1970s English. Here's why I know. When she comes to him, he goes, whoa, man. All right? So you don't have to worry about that one anymore. (laughs) So what have we seen so far? Adam is created by God. We, We have discovered that Genesis 1 and 2, Genesis 1 is a flyover. Look at the verses with me. Go back for a second. 126. God said, let us make man, Genesis 126, in our image. According to our likeness, let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 127. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Yet when we went to Genesis 2, we discovered that Genesis 1 was simply an overview because now we find out that sequentially speaking, Adam was made first. They weren't made at the same time. Adam was made from the dust of the ground. And we saw that image of the master potter shaping and molding him. And then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and Adam became a living being. But Eve is not there yet. 
She has not been created. In fact, she will be created in such a remarkable, special way. She will be taken literally out of Adam. And the New Testament will affirm this, and we'll talk about that in a second. So man is a steward. He's been made, breathed life, and now he's a caretaker. He is to cultivate and keep the garden. That's Genesis 2.15. God's given him work to do. God's given him choice. He said, you can have of all these trees, even the tree of life he has access to, only one tree he can't eat of. That's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But he's got everything at his fingertips. In fact, he's got a whole zoo of pets that he can spend time with. Maybe a pet lion. Come over here, lion. You know, I mean, incredible gifts, work to do, lush trees, a wonderful environment, a whole zoo of pets with which he can spend time. But God is going to say now that something is not good. He's been calling things good over and over again in, in rapid fashion. Uh, look, go back in verse four of chapter one. You're gonna see God says, God saw the light and it was good and he separated the light from the darkness. Go to verse 10. And you might wanna mark these because you're gonna see that there's seven of them. Uh, I'll just, just for the sake of time, God saw that it was good. End of verse 10, go to verse 12. And God saw that it was good. Go to verse 18. God saw that it was good. Go to verse 21. And God saw that it was good. Go to verse 25. And God saw that it was good in verse 31. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And, it, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Good, 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 very good. Six goods, one very good. That's seven, the biblical number of completion. It's all good. Adam should be good, right? Wrong. Now God will say for the first time, something's not good. What is not good? Well, then the Lord God said, the Genesis 2.18, it is not good for the man to be alone. Something is not good. It's proclaimed by God. The Lord God, look at verse 18, is the combination Yahweh Elohim. We've looked at that, the covenant name of God, the creative name of God. For the first time in Genesis, God makes the pronouncement that something is not good, and that is that Adam is alone. It would appear that all is good, but now God says it's not all good. There's something missing. Adam doesn't say that. God says that. What you will see in this account is divine initiative. In fact, Adam's gonna name the animals, and he doesn't say once to God, you know, I feel kind of lonely. He doesn't say to God, you know, I feel something missing, although that may be implied. It is God who is doing it. God makes the declaration it's not good for him to be alone, and God is the one who supplies the helper that fits him. Therefore, God is the one who is going to define what marriage is. He's gonna show us what his plan is. He says, it's not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. Literally, the word is corresponding to him. Proverbs 18, 21, and 22. Write it down for your notes. It says, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. If Adam being alone is not good, that means that when he is married, it is good. 
It is not good for the man to be alone. And then Proverbs 18, 22 says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. First Peter 3, 7 says, marriage is the grace of life. It's a good thing. It's mocked in our culture. What does it really mean anymore? It means a lot. In fact, it is sacred. It is something that God established early on. And he said, he implied it's good. And now we find out it's good He who finds a wife finds a good thing. What's interesting to me is right before that, it says death and life are in the power of the tongue and those who love it will eat its fruit. I never saw these verses back to back, but they are. And that tells me something about marriage. Communication is so important in marriage. In fact, there is no one who can love you more than your spouse and there's no one who can hurt you more. You know, words do matter. And when we speak ill words to our spouse, and sometimes we do it just because we live in close quarters, we've had a bad day, sometimes we take it out on those closest to us, and if you speak words of death, they're gonna hurt your spouse. We've got to measure our words, we've got to be careful. And one thing I would say, because we're all human, we've all made mistakes with our mouths, is we need to keep short accounts with each other and extend and receive forgiveness. So if you've blown it in this area and maybe you struggle, then say, you know what, please forgive me. And forgiveness will move your marriage forward unforgiveness will move your marriage backward. If you sit there and stew on words and, you know, I can't believe this person said this to me, man, it it tends to eat you up inside. You know, they do lists and they say, well, what are the top things in marriage? And they'll talk about intimacy and, and managing money and discipline of children and all that stuff. But communication is so huge. And if you're gonna be a good communicator, you've got to have Christ controlling your tongue because nobody can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. And that's why you need the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 5, it says, be filled with the Spirit. And then it goes on to talk about marriage. Marriage is going to be lived out at its best with Christ as the foundation and the individual believers filled with the Spirit. And you can take this to the bank, and I think you all know this. Marriage is the school of discipleship. It's where you learn to love somebody selflessly. And selfishness and pride are the key factors of taking marriages down. Write that down, make a mental note. It's not that difficult to figure out. But when a person will not relent, when they will not back down, marriages blow up because of selfishness and pride. And if two people are willing to do their best for the other, and you've got to learn this. Look, over time, you learn that you've got to just accept somebody for who they are. The Bible's mode of love is not performance, it's acceptance. You got to, you know, sometimes we think this, oh, when I marry him, he'll change. (laughs) No, he won't. He's been showing you his best before you got married. You need to know that. It's going to get worse, all right? I'll change him. I don't know. So it's based upon acceptance. There are differences between men and women, and they are designed by God. But you've got to learn that it's about acceptance. I will make him a helper. She'll be suitable for him, but she's not going to be exactly like him. In fact, the language means she'll be like opposite him. And of course, when Adam sees her, he's got to appreciate the differences, right? Whoa, man. She's a woman, right? That's a good thing. 
Now, God is the one taking initiative, and he says, I'm going to make a helper suitable for him. The Hebrew word is etzer, transliterated into English as E-S-E-R, or azar. This word, most frequently, the word helper or helpmate, describes Yahweh's relationship to Israel. In the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, the word connects to the idea of God being our help. Hebrews 4.16 says, we come to the throne of grace to find help in our time of need. That's the word. That's the root connection of the word. She will be his helper. And the word is most frequently used for Jehovah or Yahweh helping Israel. This is not a word about servitude. This is a word about somebody who comes alongside to be an ally. In fact, in the Hebrew picture language, Dr. Seekin says, this is not the word for a servant helper. The root word azar means to surround and protect. The word etzer is used to describe a military ally. In the Hebrew picture language, the word helpmate pictures someone who is strong and can see the enemy for who they are. Helper is probably best defined as an ally. My wife and I went to a family life marriage conference some years ago. We were invited by the ministry to kind of see what it was about. Our marriage was doing well, but everybody could use a tune-up. So we went there as a pastor and wife. And one of the things they did early on, they had hundreds of people in this room at a hotel. And they said, okay, right now I want you to turn to your spouse and say, you are not my enemy. (laughs) Well, we were kind of chuckling to one another. But you could cut the tension in that room with a knife. Because some people had come to that marriage conference as a last-ditch effort to save their marriage, and they were dangling by a string. And you could see people, and they, they couldn't even get the words out because they were sitting next to the enemy. It was her or him. That's why they were there. And what's interesting about this language is that Eve is supposed to be Adam's ally able to see the enemy. Now, my wife has incredible discernment skills. I walk around kind of like, yeah, everybody's cool. She's got incredible discernment skills. In fact, I think you bat about a thousand percent. And that is actually a biblical insight that she will have special discernment skills to recognize the enemy. In fact, I will tell you, sometimes being in in ministry, my wife has said to me, this is the enemy. Sometimes we'll have a little turmoil in the house going on and she'll say it. This is the enemy. And we'll have to just stop and pray. You know what the enemy does? He wants to divide your house because a house divided cannot stand. And some of you may be thinking, my spouse is the enemy. No, actually, your wife was given to you guys to help you see the enemy. This is a word about strength. She is a much-needed ally. You want to look at your spouse right now and say it? You, can you do it? Or not? Some of you don't want to. We'll be scheduling marriage counseling appointments later. Proverbs 31, the Proverbs 31 woman says, strength and dignity are her clothing, and she smiles at the future. Look, I've lived on this planet for a while, and I can tell you this, I have not met many weak women. Women are strong sisters. Amen? Woo! (laughs) 
Y'all know that, right? And that's actually what the language means. She's strong. She's your ally. And we've got to celebrate our combined strengths. What we tend to do in marriage when we get in trouble is we nitpick at each other's weaknesses instead of celebrating our strengths. And I can tell you this, I can speak for my wife, I believe, in saying that where she was weak, I am strong, and where I was weak, she is strong, and together we are better. That's what marriage is about. Marriage is about helping each other. It's about lifting each other up. It's not about dominating the other person or selfishness. Now, here's what happens. This is Genesis 2.19. It says, and also, out of the ground, the Lord God... If you have an NIV, it says, had formed every beast of the field, but the original probably best reads, God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. Now, some of you might think, well, how does this fit in the flow of a marriage text? Because as, as, as Adam names the animals, there's, there's multiple layers going on. One, he's going to exercise his dominion and sovereignty. He's going to be able to reflect on the difference between animals and himself. But, he, but I believe what's implied here is he's going to begin to sense that there's something missing for him. In fact, I would say that probably it's, it's good speculation to believe that animals approached him in pairs. And as they did, he gets to call out names of the animals. God has formed these beasts. And remember, Genesis 2 is giving more detail. Let me just read something really quick from New International Commentary. It says, many commentators have maintained that in this verse, one finds a classic illustration of a major conflict between the sequence of creation from chapter 1 and then what is in chapter 2, verse 19. Animals precede man in chapter one, and the other 219 animals come after man. Now, it may be the way we resolve this is just by knowing that this is not, chapter two is giving more detail, but it's not going back to the original order. But this, trans, this commentator says it's, it's possible to translate formed as had formed, so it's looking back, so the NIV. Or one can, however, retain the traditional translation and still avoid a contradiction. The verse does not imply that this was God's first creation of animals. Rather, this is one argument, it refers to the creation of a special group of animals brought before Adam for naming. I leave that to you, but those are some different views on what's happening here. So now, the Lord God made these animals out of the ground. He formed them and he created them. Think of God's power and majesty and creativity. Think of all the different forms of plants and animals and sea life. God made all of those. He's creative, man. He's powerful. And so God's been naming everything. He's named day and night. He's named the seas. But now all of a sudden, he gives the responsibility to Adam to name the animals. And the man gave names to all the cattle, verse 20, chapter 2, to the birds of the sky, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper suitable for him. Now, how did Adam get the intellectual capability to name animals? Remember, we, we do know this. Adam was probably using 100% of his brain. We also know that God appeared to make a mature universe. He's already an adult man. He probably speaks Hebrew. But he's got these intellectual capabilities, and he's, he's expressing that he's king of the earth, and the woman is queen of the earth, and everything is subdued under him. So when you give a name to something, you're expressing sovereignty over it. And so that, that's what Adam does. 
Now, I don't know how many animals lined up. I don't know if it was 10 miles of animals or a little stretch, but they were brought to him. And God collects the animals, if you will, and they're all brought to Adam. And the idea here is that Adam's pondering them. He's not just throwing out names. Names in the, uh, in the Bible have association with characteristics. So it means he has a depth of understanding. He doesn't just say aardvark and, you know, this or that. He's actually spending a little bit of time contemplating characteristics. Uh, R. Kent Hughes says, this process challenged Adam's intellectual capacities. Naming demanded acquaintance and understanding of the animals. It was not a whimsical process of reviewing a 10-mile pet parade and saying, um, let's see, I've got it, aardvark, uh, chimpanzee, oh yes, zebra. One comedian you know, was saying Adam probably got tired at some point and a fly flew up and he went... <sighs> Fly. <laughs> the fly is like, come on, can't you come up with something better than that? I don't even know if he named flies, but it's a pretty obvious name if he did. And so in naming the animals, Adam had a chance to ponder what was missing in him. And maybe he was beginning to feel lonely. And he gives names to all the cattle, the birds, verse 20, the, the beasts of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper suitable for him. The word found, I wondered, does that imply a search? Were animals lining up for, <laughs> to make their best case? Did the snake come up? Excuse me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't even know where that came from, but anyway... He's going to show up in the next chapter, though, and he's going to, you know what he's going to do. So nobody suitable was found. So the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, caused, God initiating, caused a deep sleep. Hebrew is tardama. It's used of an abnormally heavy sleep, here divinely induced. He caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh at that place. Now, this is, this is Genesis anesthesia. God puts him to sleep, and Adam does not get to see the creation of his wife out of his rib, which probably would have freaked him out. Can you imagine? So anyway, he's put into this deep sleep. He doesn't get to see God's creation of her. And God does a surgery. Now, some people say, oh, this must be allegorical. This must, this can't be literal. Why not? Doctors do surgeries. You don't think God can do a surgery? Does this mean that men have one less rib than women? No. Because <laughs> God built into the DNA pattern. If you lose something, it doesn't mean that the next generation doesn't have the same number. That's just silly. Well, some scholars say, well, the Hebrew word better translated as side, so he took from his side, but actually it says he took one of his ribs, so one of his sides doesn't make sense, so I take this literally. He took one of his ribs literally, dripping with marrow and fluid, and he would make the woman out of the rib that he took from Adam, and the question any Bible student must ask is, why? Why did God do it this way? Why does he do this surgery on Adam. Did you know that Adam is the first organ donor? <laughs> you know, when someone donates an organ, some of you know people who have donated a kidney and stuff to someone they love. It's an act of love. And this is 
probably part of the reason why this intimacy in marriage exists and this, this desire to know each other in a deeper way. So Adam's in a deep sleep and now a marvelous surgery, surgical operation is going to take place. So the man, you know, after he woke from his nap, you guys have heard that he woke up a day late and a rib short. <laughs> all heard that one. Some women believe he never woke up at all. Uh, You've heard, you know, Johnny in Sunday school, he, uh, he learned about the Genesis account of the woman being made from Adam's rib. And so he came home from Sunday school, it's the afternoon, and he's on the ground holding his side, seemed to have a tummy ache or something. And mom goes, what's wrong, Johnny, what's wrong? And he goes, my side hurts, I think I'm gonna have a wife. So as Adam sleeps, God does this marvelous surgery and this creative act. It's incredible to think about what God did here. And he begins to mold and shape the woman. The Lord God, 22, fashioned, literally built into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. It's interesting, the Midrash, one of the Jewish writings says that God is the first father to walk a bride down the aisle because he makes her and he brings her to Adam. He walks her down the aisle. And Adam is there. And you got to imagine, man, he's, he's been checking out the animals and he's been studying them and naming them. And now and there was nothing suitable for him. And now he sees her. And that's where you get the 1970s English. He goes, whoa, man. Awesome. <laughs> 1 Timothy 2.13 says, it was Adam who was created first and then Eve. 1 Corinthians 11.8 says, for man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. Matthew Henry, the great commentator says, she was not made out of his head to top him, not out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, near his heart to be beloved. Beautiful. And so this is what God does. And Adam, interestingly enough, probably for the rest of his life, his life bore a wound scar in his side, which is interesting to give life to the woman. He has a wound in his side to give life to his bride. He's wounded in his side. And then you think, wait a minute, the New Testament says that Jesus is the last Adam, the first Adam blew it, the last Adam came, protected his bride in the garden, he said, if it's me you want, uh, let, let these alone and take me, and now Jesus Christ, the last Adam, has a wound wearing his side. You may see it one day if he's still bearing those marks, and I think he probably is, according to New Testament resurrection accounts, there's a wound in the side and there's a deeper message, do you see it? Christ is the groom and we are the bride and the way we get life is from his wounded side, if you will, his death on the cross. And marriage is a picture of Christ and the church and God always does things for a reason. And Adam would bear that scar and there's a connection between the woman, amen, and the man. This is God's purpose. This conveys the idea that marriage is all about God. He's the father of the bride. And the man said this, the idea is at last, 23, is now bone of my bones, and he's speaking literally now, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called, 
He names her now woman, Isha, first time that this is used because she was taken out of man, Ish. The word Isha, you could spell it this way, I-S-H-A, and he is Ish, I-S-H. His name is embedded in hers because they are bonded together. And uh, I'm sure that there was quite a moment there where he saw this counterpart, this helper, this ally who would be his life partner. I'm sure he loved her from the moment he saw her. Now, with this idea of bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, if you would turn to Ephesians 5, we just have a few moments left, and I'm gonna just try to get in a couple other thoughts. Ephesians chapter five is the classic marriage text, and this may bring some further clarity when we've seen the Genesis account. Go to Ephesians 5 and look at verse 28. Ephesians 5, 28. She shall be called woman. She was taken out of man. In Hebrew culture, by the way, uh, in, in the West, we say if someone is a, is a kin, we say, he's my blood. You know, we might say, he's my blood brother. Well, in Hebrew culture, when someone is bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh, they're your kin. It's another way of saying there's a deep bond. Look at Ephesians 5.28. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. Think of Eve being taken out of Adam, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ also does the church. Because we are members of his body, New King James, King James adds, of his flesh and of his bones. For this cause, now Paul quotes Genesis, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each individual among you love his own wife, even as himself, and let the wife see to it that she respect her husband. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Go to Matthew 19. Ish and Isha are interesting words. Matthew 19. Uh, Dr. Seekins in the Hebrew picture language of uh, Hebrew uh, word pictures, he writes this about Ish and Isha, the names of man and woman. In Hebrew, uh, it means, man means whose hand works in the fire. The word for both man and woman or husband and wife are built around the word Ash or Ish for fire. But the differences in the words for men and women combined in Hebrew spell God's name. Done right, God's glory is revealed in marriage or a family. Without God, all that we have left is fire. In fact, without God, the Hebrew letters that are left literally say, the fire of fires, close quote. What's interesting is men and women live near the fire, if you will. If it's the fire of God's glory, it will mold and shape both of them into the image of God. But if you remove God and just leave the fire, it will wipe out and devour everything. Marriages based upon scripture and the Bible do very well when people are actually living out their faith. In fact, the statistics are incredibly impressive. The divorce rate is nowhere near the culture for serious Christians. In fact, the divorce rate is about 1% for people who take their faith seriously. The, the surveys that you hear in the world are people who say they're Christians, who give lip service to it, but are not living it out. And so now here's this incredible thing. But before we go there, Matthew 19, P 
People in our culture are saying Jesus never commented on marriage. He never defined it. He never said homosexuality was wrong. He never made any statements about this. Look at Matthew 19. Go to verse three. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Jesus answered and said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them what? Male and female. That's Genesis 1.27. That's Jesus speaking, quoting from Genesis. And said, for this cause, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus just quoted from Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. He doesn't believe they contradict each other apparently. Apparently he believes they're historical. He believes they're accurate. He doesn't believe they're allegory. He actually appeals to them with a marriage question. He says, this is the way it was from the beginning. A man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife. They're male and female, singular, 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 and they join in monogamous heterosexual marriage. Consequently, they are no longer two, but one flesh, verse six. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. When people get married and a ceremony occurs, God presides over it. And God takes covenants seriously. And when you make a commitment to your spouse in a public ceremony, God joins you together. He says, okay, that's what you want to do. Now you are married and I have joined you together. And Jesus says, if God does that, don't let people mess with it. It is to our peril in the church and in the society to try to redefine something God established. God will not be mocked. Whatever man sows, he will reap. And in the church culture, we have denominations right now who are backing away from the Genesis account, backing away from the words of Jesus. Why? Because the cultural winds are blowing a certain direction. My brothers and sisters, come on. Is this not clear to you? Jesus has answered the question emphatically. They said to him, well, then why then did Moses command seven to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but what? From the beginning, it has not been this way. Go back to Genesis and we'll finish it. Jesus appeals to Genesis. Emphatically, he has told us what marriage is about. He answered the question clearly. It's a man leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife. Now, some people say, Adam didn't have a father and mother. He's the first human because this is establishing a principle. Did Adam have a belly button? Answer that one, Christian. <laughs> Who cares? <laughs> That's not the issue. The issue is a principle is being set down. And from now on, men will leave father and mother and cleave to their wife. The word leave is a strong word. We kind of soften it. It actually means forsake. Now, it doesn't mean that when a, a young person gets married, they forsake their parents. You're supposed to honor and love your parents. But it means that your loyalties now shift from your family and parents to your new family. There's a new covenant. Think of what Jesus said at the Last Supper. The new covenant is that new marriage. And now that person, both male and female, leave the first family of parents, all that they've known, and they cleave to their wife. The word cleave means to stick like glue. And these are both used for um, uh, forsake is, is covenant language in the Old Testament and cleave is Israel should stick to Yahweh like glue. They should cling to him always. Strong language. You got to leave and you got to cleave. Application. Some 
people who get married don't leave, and some parents are meddling parents. And it's dangerous. Because if you start meddling in your kid's marriage and you get between them, you could lend support, you can give advice if they ask you for it. Even if you see something wrong, you can try to help them get closer to God and one another. But if you become a wedge in that marriage, you are disobeying scripture. And if you're a young adult and you can't leave mommy and daddy and start your new family, you're in trouble too. Both are mistakes. Somebody picks up the phone and they're mad at their spouse and they say, His, she calls mom, this is what he did to me. This is what he said to me. And mom's squeezing the phone. 20 minutes, right? She says, where's the gun? Get the gun. I'm gonna... <laughs> so then she hangs up. A couple hours go by. They make up. They're reconciled. But mom's still over there. She hasn't been part of the forgiveness process. She still wants to kill him. You may want to rethink that. You can certainly use mom to vent, but be careful how much you share because she doesn't get to be part of the reconciliation process. She still hates him. That's why she wouldn't pass the mashed potatoes to him at the... Anyway. (laughs) Children must leave. Parents must let go. Here's another thing. Even though the two become one, you still are individuals, and the language implies this. Yes, they are one, but they're still individuals. They still have their own identity, their own male and femaleness. And it is good to spend a lot of time together, but it's also good to do stuff apart. You can have your own hobbies when you're married. I enjoy playing golf. My wife does not want to play golf. And all God's people said, not want to shop most of the time. Sometimes I enjoy shopping. She doesn't like shopping either. But a lot of guys, they, you know, they all congregate at that bench. You know, the guy bench. How long do you think it's going to be? I have no idea. You know what the score of the game is? Yeah, it's on my phone. You know, they kind of just put their arm around each other. It's all right to spend a little time apart. In fact, it might help your marriage if you have your own individual interests. As we come full circle, (laughs) here's the beautiful thing. I I think you can see in that wound in his side and in the beauty of marriage, it's a picture of Christ and his church. Jesus was wounded for us, and one day, you may not be married right now, maybe you lost your spouse, but you still have a husband who's faithful. Amen? Amen. And one day, you're going to see him face to face, and marriage is for now in the resurrection We won't be married to each other, apparently. We're going to be married to the Lamb of God. We're going to have deeper relationships, I think, than we've ever had before, but we're going to be at a marriage supper of the Lamb. This is all picturesque of Christians in the church. Do you know him? You know, the way you come to know Christ, I got the privilege of leading a couple people to Christ yesterday at the outreach, is you just got to say, I do. The, the wedding invitation is there. You've just got to say, I do, I will. If you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you know him? It's incredible. He wants to have a deep relationship with you. He died to give you life. He was wounded for your transgressions and mine. And he says, will you marry me? And all you got to do is really turn from doing it your own way and say, I will. Would you bow with me, Father? We thank you for this message on marriage. It's so important that we understand it, that we apply it.
that for young people who are trying to figure out the right way to go, that they find somebody who's equally yoked and on the same page and really seeing the foundation being you, Lord. And I pray for marriages that are hurting right now that you'd restore them. I pray that for those who are off track, they'd get back on track. Where there's been confusion, that there would be clarity. Where there's been hopelessness, there would be hope. Lord, thank you that marriage is a picture of Christ and his bride. Forgive us for muddying it in our culture. Forgive us as the church in America where we have compromised. Lord, I pray for your mercy and I pray for revival and even reformation in the church. Let it start with us. We're not here to condemn people. We're not here to wag a bony righteous finger. We're, we're here to rejoice in your grace, but we also know you're a God of love and a God of truth, and we wanna bring truth to our society where there is confusion. Uh, I pray that there would be hope. And if you have not met Jesus, I would just pray for you to cry out to him right now. And if you wanna do it right now and you wanna say yes to him, and start that new relationship, it's something like this. And I would just encourage you, pray it right now, pray it out loud. Jesus, come into my life. Thank you that you died on the cross for my sins and rose from the dead. I say I do, I trust you. I turn from my sin and I turn to you. Make me your child. Forgive me of my sins and give me a new start. Lord, I pray for those who are crying out, maybe even prodigals in the room who have gotten off track and maybe even living with some consequences that you'd pour your mercy on them, give them a new start, a new beginning, help them to know they're forgiven and cleansed. And I pray for this precious church body that marriages will stay strong, will be true to our covenants, the commitments that we've made, what you have joined together that we'd let nobody separate including ourselves. Where we've made mistakes, Lord, and erred, may we rest in your grace and know that uh, the only unforgivable sin is to reject Christ. So no matter what mistakes we've made, we're gonna just put them under your grace right now collectively and ask that your living waters would flood and flow over this congregation. Bring healing, uh, new starts, and maybe just a more, a renewed firmness about standing for marriage and especially for our marriages and families. We pray that in Jesus' mighty name, amen.